Hello, my name is Michelle Yonachan, the Wandering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent. I'm joined by the writer and academic Kylie Moore Gilbert to discuss her book, The Uncaged Sky, My 804 Days in an Iranian Prison. Kylie was arrested at Tehran Airport in September 2018 by the Islamic Revolutionary Guards. Convicted of espionage, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. She was released early in November 2020, part of a prisoner swap deal supported by the Australian government. Kylie, welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. When you were in prison, you engaged in multiple hunger strikes, smuggled letters to the press, and even scaled the fence of the exercise yard and climbed onto a rooftop. All forms of resistance, in your words. Was writing the book also a form of resistance? I think for me, it was a form of healing more than anything else. In a way, I guess it is also resistance in that I was determined to get the, the true story out there and tell people about the reality of what this horrific regime is doing to prisoners, to its own citizens, to its own people and to foreign visitors like myself. And um, in a way, I guess that is a form of resistance. But to me, it was just important to establish the facts, especially given the amount of propaganda and lies and, you know, misinformation that this regime had promoted about me, um, including immediately on the same day as my release. There was a 15-minute long package on Iranian state TV accusing me of all sorts of crazy things. And, you know, it, getting my voice and, and my story out there on the record was really important to me. As well as that, is it also a book that's campaigning, pointing out how governments deal with their nationals, in this case, the Australian government, in these kinds of situations. I, I know you you said you wish your case had gone public earlier and that your family had listened to you and gone to the press instead of you know, understandably listening to the Australian government, which was calling them for calling for quiet diplomacy. Is is that part of your mission? I think so. I think it was very difficult for me, particularly in the first year post-release, which is when I wrote the book, to divorce what happened to me and the events of what happened to me from the broader political context and both of what you know was happening in Australia with the, the diplomatic efforts underway and, and the way that the government here approached them, as you mentioned, quiet diplomacy rather than any kind of campaigning um, or sort of um, messaging more broadly um, from my family or, or other supporters or loved ones, um, you know, that or, you know, the broader context of Iran's practice of hostage diplomacy and their hostage taking of innocent foreign citizens for diplomatic leverage. It was very, very difficult for me to divorce that broader context from the actual facts of, you know, my day-to-day -day life in prison and, and, you know, the conversations I was having and the friendships I was building when I was there. So I think it is all rolled into one. And, and whilst I didn't initially set out to have an activist message behind the book, I think it was kind of inevitable that there would be undertones of that in my storytelling. And there's also an activism, I think, when you're documenting 
the incarceration, as you say, of political prisoners, and, and also showcasing injustice against regular convicts too. Do you, think, do you think the book will change anything? Will it make a difference? Gosh, it would be amazing if it did. Uh, I'm not so naive as to think my book is going to change much, um, change the you know people's perceptions dramatically. I think people who have read the book perhaps have had their ideas about the Iranian regime confirmed rather than changed per se. Um, it would be amazing if you know some of these regime supporters did read the book, but I, I very much doubt that they would go and seek it out. So it's probably more preaching to the converted rather than being able to change people's minds, maybe. But you know, if it has had even the smallest impact on a small handful of people's lives, then I'd be happy. When did you decide you were going to put your story down in a book? Whilst I was still in prison, actually. Uh, I had a lot of time on my hands. I, I was in solitary confinement, particularly in the, the final year, 2020, for quite a while. And because I'd been through so much at that point, I did spend a lot of time thinking, how am I going to put this story down to paper when I do eventually get out, whether that be in 10 years' time, you know, at the end of my sentence or, you know, in 10 days' time if somebody turns up to rescue me. Um, I obviously didn't know what the ending of the story was going to be, but I did put some thought into how frank I wanted to be about what happened and whether there were certain things I would want to not talk about or um, minimise perhaps. Um, and I sort of eventually came to the understanding that I guess for my own healing, it was important to just be as upfront as possible and talk about the less palatable aspects and, you know, the mistakes that I had made and the silly things that I had done, you know, not setting myself up as a hero, but trying to show myself in all of my flaws as well. And, you know, I, I kind of came to that realization that that would be the approach I'd like to take to the book. And did you find yourself self-censoring at all in other ways i mean you documented people in detail both prisoners and guards and others were you were you concerned about repercussions for them or, or for yourself i was concerned about repercussions for them and there are people who featured in my experiences in iran that aren't in the book because i simply could not either i couldn't contact them to obtain their permission or um, I felt that it would be dangerous for them to include their stories in my book and others I've used pseudonyms for. Um, but interestingly, a lot of my cellmates, those who I was able to get in touch with via their families or even, you know, they'd been let out of prison themselves uh, subsequent to my release and I was able to speak with them. Most of them actually wanted me to use their real names and urged me to tell their stories and weren't fearful for the repercussions or they said we don't care you know it's more important to us to have uh, you know what happened to us be in your book and, and be out there as well so it was a great concern for me but I, I just I just tried to navigate that as as best I could by obtaining people's permission and where I couldn't obtain their permission then changing some of you know the identifying facts about them and, and their names as well in the story. I'm assuming it's been over a year, perhaps, since since you finished the book. So is there anything that you left out, Kylie, that you wish you had included? Oh, it's, you know, the epilogue of the book I wrote 
pretty much a few weeks before the whole thing had to be finished type set sent off to the printers and I'm happy with it um, but it all kind of came out in one one or two days you know in a rush and if I had more time I think I would have been more reflective on the post-release transition period mm. a few people have mentioned that to me that they wanted to know what happened next what was it like coming home and how did I grapple with that and I think for me it was important to sort of bookend the story beginning with my arrest at Tehran airport and ending with my departure from Iranian airspace on that flight home um, but I didn't really talk about too much in the epilogue the homecoming experience and the kind of mental psychological rehabilitation that you you have to go through in a way um, to try and grapple with your experiences and it's still ongoing for me obviously it's it's a journey I mean I, I haven't been out two and a half years yet so it's a you know a, a more longer term transition but perhaps you know if I had a little bit more time I would have written at greater length about that experience too. On day 17 Kylie you got hold of a pen you called it something of incalculable value and you wrote a poem on styrofoam you graffitied a wall and you kept a tally of the number of days you've been incarcerated you also smuggled secret notes to other prisoners who wrote back to you was there something also about the act of just being able to write absolutely uh, i am i was i am still an academic and reading and writing and just intellectual pursuit has been my life for so long and it's you know a fundamental way of how we express ourselves as human beings and for me being disconnected from my intellectual um, landscape I guess in, in my mind and just sort of being forced to live day in day out for the prison routine and the kind of mundane physical aspects of life and not being able to exercise my mind or my brain at all was really a struggle and when you're in solitary confinement you know you literally have nothing to do it's sort of complete sensory deprivation so having the outlet of having a pen and being able to scroll here or there you know notes to other prisoners or to myself or just using it as a form of entertaining my brain as well it was really crucial and, you know, because I had to hide the pen and keep it secret, it's not like I could just sit out in the open in my cell and write away, um, which I would have dearly loved to have done. But knowing that it was there and, and plotting and scheming about, you know, the middle of the night when I'm going to get up and, you know, scroll a note to my my um, neighbor in the neighboring cell or whatever, um, it sort of provided hours of entertainment for my mind, even when I wasn't using it. So yeah, the pen was really my most treasured possession and finding new places to hide it and new ways of keeping it concealed from the guards because they would search my cell every day um, was also really important. And I came up with a few ingenious hiding places and managed to sort of keep hold of it for most of the time I was there. I mean, it wasn't like you had reams of paper um, to accompany this pen so that you could kind of keep a diary I wanted to talk about remembering and chronology because there's so many characters in the book. There are so many rooms that look the same. There were so many, you know, that you were incarcerated in or questioned in and so many corridors and journeys in cars where you were blindfolded, but your memory seems formidable. 
it's not like though that you were keeping a journal yeah memory is really interesting to me and it was a conscious decision that I'd made to memorize as much information as possible because I knew that even if I had reams of paper there's no way they would let me take those pages out with me when I was released um so I got to a point where you know I was in solitary confinement for seven months in one stretch um, from the end of 2019 to mid-2020 and at that point I had determined I would want to I wanted to retain as much information as possible perhaps write this book but even just for my own sake I wanted to remember and I I was actively memorizing um, detail of conversations names dates um, you know, I would visualize where, whenever I went, was brought for a meeting, I would visualize where I sat in the room, where all of the participants of the meeting were sitting, um, what people were wearing. I would just try and retain as much visual um, data as I could about my captors, my interrogators, um, you know, court officials, anybody really. And I would go over this again and again and again in my head and reinforce the information because I was in solitary and I had so much time on my hands. It became a project for me to, you know, spend several hours a day pacing backward and forward in my cell and going over all the information that I had memorized with sort of um, memory cues to trigger. Okay, next was this bit, then there was this bit, then there was this bit. And it, it had to be always in order. Otherwise, I couldn't remember it. Um, but I, I've memorized vast swathes of information, thousands and thousands of words. And I memorized my own poetry as well because I wanted to take that out with me. Um, so it, I guess it became a mental game. And for that reason, I, I had such a sharp recollection of a lot of events and conversations in normal life. My memory is pretty shoddy and I'm, you know, not at all retaining, you know, any of that stuff, but, um, it was something I'd consciously worked on. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I wondered if it was you making a point to remember everything or that the experiences were so vivid that, you know, it was kind of easy to remember, but it sounds like it, it wasn't, it was very much a kind of conscious decision. And, and maybe, is that how your mind works now, Kylie? Is that, is that, you know, have you taken that out of prison with you? I have a greater appreciation understanding of the power of memorization and I guess of the human brain in that sense. I don't think it's something that I would utilize on a day-to-day -day basis here um, on the outside, but I know it's there. I know I have this ability and I think we all have this ability, but very few of us are ever sort of pushed to use those skills or, or discover um, what our brains are capable of. And, you know, I know if I'm put in a situation again where I need to draw on those powers of memory and memorization that are, they'll still be there. So that's actually, you know, quite empowering, to be honest, to, I mean, not just memory, but in, in general, I pushed my mind to so many extremes, particularly in solitary confinement at various points. You really discover your boundaries. You discover where your red lines are and what you're capable of suffering through and where your breaking point lies. And I think, you know, normally in everyday life, none of us really are ever forced to discover those boundaries. So you know, I'm happy that I know that. I know that about myself. I, I discovered a lot about myself that I was never aware of before. And, you know, whilst I'm not using it in my day-to-day -day life, I'm aware that it's there. And, you know, that's empowering. Well, in reading your book, I, it felt to me like you wrote it 
in one take. It was, as we say in broadcasting, I felt like I hardly drew a breath at times. And I wondered if that process in reality was anything similar to my reading of it, whether the recollection and then the putting down of the story was as swift and as seamless as that. Yeah, I think it was pretty swift. I mean, I, I wrote the whole first draft in about 10 months and there wasn't much drafting. You know, I would I sat down and wrote and it all came out, basically. I wrote a lot more than what is in the book. I had to cut it down significantly. But, um, it, yeah, I mean, it was a quick process and it was part of my healing process, I think, to just get it all out somehow. <laughs> Um, so it, I do feel like I, I wrote it very, very quickly and what came out in the first draft was usually very close to what remained in the final manuscript. I want to ask you, Kylie, how, how travel is for you now? Because you were in an airport when you were arrested, actually at an immigration desk, when you realised that things were going wrong. How does it feel to arrive in a new country and to be in an airport even? My relationship with travel definitely has shifted. I used to love traveling. I've been to more than 50 countries. I used to backpack. Um, I traveled quite a bit for my research. You know, I was a fieldwork academic. Um, I, I, I love studying languages. So I've, you know, lived in a few countries and studied languages and done language programs there. Now I feel like my passion for travel has definitely diminished I expect it will come back at some point, but I've only been overseas once since arriving back in Australia. And, you know, that was to the Ubud Writers Festival in Bali, <laughs> um, as you know. And that was very much baby steps, you know, like that as an Australian going to Bali is, is hardly a remarkable feat. <laughs> um, and, you know, some of that might be COVID too, because, it, you know, we were locked inside our own country for a while there. But, um I just don't have that same passionate desire to travel around the world as I used to, sadly. You know, I've definitely been burnt and I'm far less trusting and far less blasé about travel um, compared to how I was before my arrest. I didn't know that Bali was the only time you'd left Australia since since you were freed, which is where we met, as you say. Um, how How did it feel then, arriving? at Bali airport and and being you know somewhere where you know there are different rights yeah I did think about it um you know we were in the queue for passport control I guess at Bali uh, for quite a while there was quite a long queue of people before us and you know we were standing there and for a few hours and I, you know I did think about it but the rational part of my brain said you've done nothing's going to happen to you here you've done nothing wrong and um you know you have a completely legitimate reason to be here and you'll be fine you've got to make this step you know you've got to leave your country at some point and going to Bali was a pretty innocuous choice um you know had I gone to the Middle East or somewhere else in the developing world which perhaps didn't have such a close relationship with Australia and um you know had a history of just you know detaining people for no reason or something I would have been utterly terrified and I don't I wouldn't have gone at all you'd hope but 
um, yeah, I, I think it was a pretty innocuous destination to choose. But at some point, I will go further afield and, you know, I'll have to grapple with these things. But overall, it's it's fine. I mean, it's good to push myself out of my comfort zone as well. I mean, the Middle East is your academic field of expertise, Kelly. And, and normally, I imagine that's a place you would want to and need to go often for your work you know how feasible does it feel I know there are parts of the Middle East I could never visit again because anywhere with Iranian influence or Iranian presence is off limits um likewise I think I would I would think twice about much of the Middle East simply because even if it's not a country which is sympathetic to Iran or has Iranian infiltration or Iranian activity um, in its territory, there are, you know, the, the Middle East is largely a, a sea of authoritarianism. And most countries in the Middle East don't have judicial system any better than that of Iran in that you can be arbitrarily arrested and detained for no reason. Uh, and it would be very difficult for anybody to help you once that's happened. So, I definitely would love to and plan on returning to the Middle East one day, but I would do my homework, liaise with the security authorities here too, and definitely think twice before going to any country where, you know, you had the level of impunity that you that I experienced in Iran. So it hasn't tempered your passion for the place which you've dedicated so much of your career to. It's it's just the logistics of where feels plausible as a destination yeah i i'm more passionate about the middle east than ever you know including iran i'm so interested in iran now it it hasn't dampened my appreciation or love of the region it's more you know trying to be realistic about what's possible now for me in especially so soon after my incarceration i mean maybe in 20 years time nobody's going to care and hopefully the iranian regime won't be around anyway by then but um yeah, right now, I think I just have to be careful in terms of my personal security. But I do really love the Middle East, and I'm still very interested in it and passionate about it and um, fully intend on and, and would love to go back someday. What's astonishing, I, I feel, as I read your book, is that you give context and backstories to the bad guys as well as the good guys. And, and some of the most sadistic guards you encountered didn't come across to me as a 100% villain. Is this who you are, Kylie, exceptionally generous and compassionate? Or, or did you consciously do <laughs> That's how it felt from where I was sitting. But, or did, did you consciously develop, do you think, characteristics in prison that, like you did perhaps with your memory as a mode of survival so, so the bitterness wouldn't take over? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good assessment, really. Prison brings out all sorts of stuff in you in everybody differently as well uh you see the very very best and the very very worst of humanity in prison and it can come from quarters that are entirely unexpected including from guards and interrogators not just um you know from your fellow prisoners so it really just pushes you to extremes and i guess early on i had to make quite a few ethical moral decisions especially about how much of my values do I compromise in order to save my own butt essentially um 
or you know the illusion of of saving myself often you know that it would have been a trick anyway or not it wouldn't have helped my situation but at the time I thought perhaps it could have and this involved you know um whether I would sell others out whether I would make a false confession um whether I would cooperate and collaborate with my captors these kinds of decisions require some sort of ethical evaluation and I didn't always make the right decision and sometimes I went a few steps down the path of agreeing to cooperate and then took it back and told them to piss off which I'm very glad I did but there are a lot of mind games there's a lot of confusion and and lack of understanding as well in prison especially as a foreigner when you don't speak didn't speak the language I mean I didn't at the beginning and and didn't understand the parameters so yeah I mean I guess it brings out a side to you that you don't really know or, or have, have has never hasn't really been revealed before um so I don't know if that's necessarily all of who I am as a person or how I would behave in a, in regular life um but I am proud of myself that I found this kind of inner stubbornness and stood up to my captors and defended my principles and didn't sell out my friends or sell out anybody actually. Um, so, you know, I, I'm glad that I found a moral backbone in that sense, but it's not like I conduct myself that way in everyday life all the time. <laughs> um, I'm just a normal person. <laughs> Um, but, I, you know, I did see a, a three-dimensional side to most of my captors. There were very few people there that were truly evil and, you know, didn't the, whose humanity didn't come through at all, especially the lower-level, less senior guards and, and others who really were just doing a job and let you somewhat into their lives as well. You know, I spent a prolonged period of time with Revolutionary Guard women, um, female uh, largely female prison guards, but also a couple of female, I wouldn't call them interrogators, but intelligence agents or operatives or whatever, who would accompany the interrogators. And, you know, I got to see that they were humans too, and that they had their own personal lives and their own problems, and they had sympathy for me, and they had feelings, you know, of, of being conflicted about what they were doing sometimes as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's important not to see the world in binary black and white terms. And, and I, it was important to me to reflect their humanity in the book as well. Now that you're on the outside, is there never a reason not to feel hope? Hope is a very powerful emotion and it's essential to surviving prison. I think I've seen people who've lost hope entirely, given up, and I at certain points also entirely gave into despair and lost all sense of hope. And it's a sort of an emotional death at that point. And it does lead to just maybe even in the end physical death, you know, like if you just give up on all hope and it's a prolonged giving up on hope, not in my case where it would restore itself after a few days. You know, I, I was never inhabiting a space where I was just hopeless and despairing forever and ever. But I have seen other prisoners who've got into that headspace and some of them can barely move their limbs, you know, like they're, they're just dead emotionally. And that's the power of hope. It, it really is something that can get you up in the morning and make you keep going and keep fighting and keep suffering and struggling 
you know, it's a trade-off where you think I'm going through all this right now, but if I believe in the future, if I have hope that the future will be better, that I'll get out of this situation somehow, then I can find the energy to keep going. So if that is missing, it's devastating. So I do think hope is just a, a crucial component to not just something extreme like being in prison, but everyday life as well. You know, it's it's part of the human condition, but when we lose it, it can be so destructive. And, you know, I try and remind myself of that, that holding on to hope when I was in some of my darkest days back there in, in solitary confinement, for instance, you know, it was the difference between just finding the physical energy to get up and continue or, or the alternative, which was just to lie prostrate on the floor and, and not be able to move. So, um, yeah, I guess my experiences in prison really showed me the importance of hope. After your sentencing, 10 years, the court asked you to write down your response. And this is what you wrote. No matter what you do to me, you can't take away my freedom. I am still free because freedom is an attitude. Freedom is a state of mind. What does freedom mean to you now, Kylie, now that you're out? When I hear that, I laugh because, um, you know, myself and my soulmates used to, they used to tease me about writing that because it, it's the slogan of some sort of luxury watch brand or something. <laughs> like, what are you even doing thinking about that? You know, <laughs> my, my, my soulmates, Nilo and Sipide, would, would quote that line back at me months later and laugh at me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, freedom means everything to me, obviously. It's, you don't appreciate how valuable freedom is until you lose it something that we entirely take for granted and most people will live their entire lives never being deprived of their freedom in any meaningful way and it it you know it, it is everything the freedom to choose to determine how you live your life and you know I wasn't even able to determine the smallest things like where I kept my toothbrush or how many times a day you know, I could use the toilet or, or even if I could shower or not or any of these things at, at various points. And when everything is taken away from you, including your, the freedom to determine what to do in your own life, um, you know, whether or not you get to wear a pair of socks, you know, everything, when that's taken away from you, you really are dehumanized. You're reduced to this kind of subhuman lemming of a person, you know, you're just there to be ordered about and and told what to do and you have no power or, or agency so for me it really just yeah emphasized the importance of freedom and I'm trying to value it and I'm trying not to forget those lessons it's very easy to just click back into the same headspace I was in before and you know take my freedom for granted again but I do really hope that I'll I won't forget that lesson as I move forward in my life because yeah freedom is just so valuable it's everything and now you're, you're free to write anything you want to write. What are you working on? Is it another book or a project? Yeah, I have a couple of projects at the moment. I am very interested in hostage diplomacy and arbitrary detention policy. I've been working quite a bit in the advocacy space here in Australia with the government, uh, with NGOs, uh, and sort of lobbying and advocating for us to improve our strategies and policies in this space, in particular also the support for 
detainees' families and the readjustment process, rehabilitation process once someone comes out of prison, which isn't it's basically non-existent here in Australia. Uh, and I'm in touch with the families of current detainees, either in Australia or in other countries abroad, um, you know, trying to support them as much as I can and, and offer any advice that I can. So um, I've been writing a lot about this subject and I have it in my mind to write a book about hostage diplomacy, actually. A non-academic book, but a research-informed book. Um, I'm also writing a novel, uh, the subject of which will remain <laughs> a secret until I, I figure out whether it's any good. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's it's early days. But I am doing a bit of writing. Yes, I, I love writing and um, it's always been part of my life, normally nonfiction academic style writing. But, um, you know, I, I did really enjoy the process of writing my memoir. So maybe I'll continue in that vein as well in the future. And finally, Kylie, is, is, is where you are now, which I know you're in Melbourne, is, does that feel very much home and where you belong and where you want to be? Um, for now it does. I'm not originally from Melbourne, so it does feel like home in a way, but it, it also kind of never has. So for now, I think it's important to just put down roots and be a bit stable for a while. I was living in Melbourne before I went to Iran and before my arrest. It was important to me to come back to Melbourne, to come back to Australia and just have some stability, you know, not have everything be changed up all the time. Just come back to where I where I left and try and rebuild and continue my life. But I'm not wedded to Melbourne forever and ever. Uh, I just think for the moment that stability um, is important to me in my healing. Kylie Moore-Gilbert, thank you for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. And my thanks to the supporter of this podcast, Abercrombie & Kent. Goodbye.